This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Kang Sheng. This guy is hands down one of the shadiest characters in modern Chinese history, or certainly from the period leading up to the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949. He's not a very well-known figure in the pantheon of Chinese leaders, other than the cognoscenti of Chinese history, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who knew who this guy was. He's best known as the father of China's secret police, or more accurately, the Chinese Communist Party's secret police. He's also called the godfather of the Cultural Revolution. So I guess uh, if you had to tag him with something bite-sized and simple, you could put it that way. In this podcast, we'll examine this guy's life. It's a fascinating life, as depraved and sinister as it was. More important than being the father of China's secret police, he was a very close confidant of Chairman Mao. And Kang Sheng was there at every critical moment whenever Mao would do all the things he would do that ultimately resulted in mass death or misery for thousands and millions and tens of millions. Blame for the most egregious of blunders lies squarely with Chairman Mao. You could just consider Kang Sheng as a dark figure, like a bad angel standing on the chairman's shoulder who had Mao's ear and whispered all the right things that just egged the chairman on and justified Mao's outrageous ideas. He was Mao's henchman, for sure, and he did Mao's dirty work with sadistic pleasure. When he was running the secret police in the 30s and 40s, he had the goods on everybody, and with all this information... Mao knew how to utilize him to keep an eye on his rivals and make sure no one wasn't following anything except the party line, Mao's party line. I cannot emphasize enough what a special and unique relationship these two kindred spirits had. I used this book I bought in Hong Kong when I was living out there back in the 90s. It's called The Claws of the Dragon, Kang Sheng, the evil genius behind Mao and his legacy of terror in, the people, in People's China. Long title. The authors were John Byron and Robert Peck. Like I do with all podcasts, I use titles from my own personal library, the Google, and Google Books, which is always good for locating hard-to-find sources about ancient China. They summed up Kang Sheng this way, quote, He was a cold, self-possessed manipulator who fused refinement and intellectual sensibilities with the criminal delight of a Renaissance princeling of the arts of inflicting agony and destruction. And if you lined up Kang Sheng with seven other Chinese and someone asked you to pick out the sleazy secret police chief, a hundred out of a hundred would pick Kang Sheng. He had this, this high forehead, sort of receding hairline, long face, full lips, and he had three other things about his appearance that were his trademark. He had these round tortoiseshell glasses, and he was always impeccably presented. And to top it all off, he had this David Niven or... Brad Pitt's character, Aldo Rain, of Inglorious Bastards fame, spot-on mustache that just gave his total visage a sadistic and disturbing kind of countenance. Let's look at the life of Kang Shan. Kang Shan was a Shandong Ren, that is, he hailed from Shandong province up in the north, the province where Qingdao is located, of the famous Qingdao Bear. 
He was born in 1898, which was one of those many terrible times in China when the place was in decline and there were pockets of chaos everywhere. There were only 13 more years left in what became the last dynasty of imperial China. Kangsheng came from money. His father was a rich landowner, and Kang grew up comfortably in a place called Da Tai Zhuang, about 50 miles southwest of Qingdao. He had a lot of name changes before he settled on Kangsheng. He was born as Zhang Zongke. He was brought up in the traditional Confucian style and was given a very decent education. He married in 1916 in a typical Chinese arranged marriage to the daughter of a nearby landlord. She had bound feet and was totally not what you would call a modern woman. They had two kids, but divorced in 1924. That was a big year for Kang Sheng, so it was only fitting that 1924 was the year of the rat. That was the year that he joined the Chinese Communist Party, formed in Shanghai three years prior. I also read accounts that he also joined in 1925. By that time, he had already changed his name two times, uh, going from Zhang Zongke to Zhang Yuxian and then Zhang Shuping. He mostly served as a labor organizer in Shanghai and also handled a few other tasks and missions. He had made his way down there to attend Shanghai University, which had some kind of affiliation or something with the high school he attended back in Shandong. What Berkeley was to the mid-60s counterculture, Shanghai University was to radical Chinese politics in the 1920s and 30s. So this was the vehicle that carried him from landed gentry to become a hardcore communist. On April 12, 1927, the infamous Green Gang, or Qingbang as they were known, turned on all the communists in Shanghai. Chiang Kai-shek wanted to eradicate this communist problem down in Shanghai and pull this weed out by the roots early. They were starting to take hold, and Chiang wanted to stop them before they got too powerful. So he talked to the boss of the Green Gang, Du Yuesheng, a.k.a. Big Air Du, and strikes a deal with him, and the White Terror commences, and about 5,000 or so communists and communist sympathizers got theirs. Shanghai was the world capital of the great vices of drugs, gambling, and prostitution, among others. And the Green Gang ran all that. So Chiang Kai-shek used this criminal organization to go after his increasingly more powerful communist enemies. And Big Air Du did a swell job. His gang fanned out across Shanghai and just butchered these communists, and whoever didn't get killed was arrested and thrown in prison and no doubt tortured. The party up till then operated rather openly, but after the White Terror, the movement and all its leaders got driven underground. That same year, Kang Sheng married Cao Yiyo. This marriage lasted till Kang's death, and although I won't get into it in this podcast, she was a lifelong ally and supporter of her husband, and they were true soulmates. The next year after they married, 1928, Kang changed his name yet again, this time to Zhao Rong. He and Cao Yiyo lived the good life in Shanghai. Kang worked for some rich capitalist by day and was an underground communist operative at night, working his way slowly and steadily up the ladder. 1931 was another in a number of pivotal years for Kang Sheng. The Communist Party's chief of security was a former Green Gang member named Gu Xunzhang. He got himself arrested by the KMT, and in that year, Kang Sheng filled the void and became the head of the Chinese Communist Party secret police. He had established his credentials to the extent that by 1933, he went with the CCP delegation to Moscow. 
This was the group that represented the Chinese Communist Party at the Comintern, or the Communist International. This was the group, led by the Soviets, of course, that was sort of a world congress of communist parties. The Chinese delegation was led by Wang Ming, a hardcore supporter of the Soviet style of communist theory and organization. He was an early rival of Mao, but a close associate of Kang. 1934, Kang was still in Moscow and got himself elected to the Central Committee and Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. In Russia, Kang Sheng had himself a front-row seat to all the wretched ways of the secret police and how to spread terror and its many uses in growing the party and the political power of those who wielded the power of terror. The Soviets were the kings of this, so Kang learned from the best, and when he went back to China almost four years later in November 1937, he had picked up a lot of intimate and useful knowledge about how to destroy the lives of people. By 1937, the Chinese Communist leadership was living up in Yan'an, located in Shanxi province. This was where they ended up after the long march that had begun in Jiangxi province in 1934. During the period of the long march, the historic event that really solidified the Chinese communists and established Mao Zedong as the leader, Kang Sheng was in Russia. So he missed out on that pivotal event in Chinese history and arrived at the base camp set up in Yan'an with Wang Ming and the others who had been part of China's group at the Comintern. Wang Ming posed a serious threat to Mao's leadership. Kang was at this time loyal to Wang, but he ended up becoming one of the first in a long list of Communist Party leaders that felt the insertion of Kang's knife between their shoulder blades. In fact, Kang, at one time or another, pretty much turned on every single major leader except Mao. Kang was extremely useful for Mao when he arrived in Yan'an. He had a complete package of uses that Mao needed to consolidate his power. There were seven things about Kang Sheng in 1937 that Mao realized were very important to him. First of all, he was very close to Wang Ming and Wang's Russian faction of the Communist Party, and he had all the necessary secrets on Wang and all of his close associates. Kang also spoke Russian, which Mao did not. He also had all this experience living in Russia and was as much of an expert on which way the winds were blowing as anyone who spent four years there. At Yan'an, Kang was considered a true expert in communist theory. The fifth thing about Kang that Mao knew was going to be absolutely essential was Kang's mastery of how to operate a secret police force and use it as a means of terror against suspected enemies. Then there was the sixth and seventh aspects about Kang Sheng that tied him close to Mao for the rest of his life. If Kang hadn't been a secret police chief, he probably would have been a scholar, devoting himself to the pursuits of a Confucian gentleman. He was very educated in Chinese poetry, painting, art, history, and philosophy. All the things that Mao was passionate about his whole life. So Kang and Mao shared this passion that sort of formed a bond between the two. But nothing superglued that Mao-Kang bond more than the introduction Kang made to Mao in 1938 of a 24-year-old Shanghai movie actress born as Li Shumeng. She was a young lady of a very dubious past, littered with all the detritus one would come to expect from someone living the bohemian life of 1920-30 Shanghai movies. She was known as Lan Ping in the movies, and gave up this life and lifestyle to join the revolution. She moved her way up to Yan'an in 1938 and caused quite a sensation from the start. She was also from Shandong province and actually knew Kang Sheng. 
I don't know whether it's true or not, but when she was a young teenager, it said that she was a mistress of Kangsheng or that they had some kind of torrid affair. So they gravitated towards each other up in Yan'an. Mao had an eye for the ladies his whole life, and this glamorous Shanghai actress with the dubious reputation caught his eye and his interest at once. She was, of course, the infamous Jiang Qing, fodder for a future podcast, for sure. Mao was still married at the time to his third wife, He Zhen. She was a revolutionary with a good background. So after Jiang Qing arrived in Yan'an in August 1937, Mao started to openly carry on with her. There was, understandably, quite a bit of resistance from the other leaders about this. After all, he was married to a good woman with an excellent background in the party, and this Jiang Qing not only had this totally bourgeois background as a movie actress, but also was rumored to have had a whole string of affairs and lovers. Even worse, she had been imprisoned by the KMT and was suspected very strongly of being a KMT spy. But Kang Sheng knew that in Jiang Qing, he had a very special ally. And if he could somehow be instrumental in forging this Mao Jiangqing romance, they could do nothing except help him politically. So he played an early role in encouraging and cultivating Mao's relationship with Jiangqing. Kang knew the value of playing the role of the Zhentofeng. This, this translates to pillow wind or wind on the pillow. In English, we may call it pillow talk. Kang Sheng, for one, knew the value of having a close ally beholden to him personally who was also bedding down each night with the top guy in the party and the whole movement. By the summer of 1938, Mao is very much carrying on openly with Jiang Qing. The vocal opposition to this was strong. But Kang used his nefarious ways to sanitize her past record and clean it up a bit. In front of the cadres who were grumbling about her, he vouched for her background and revolutionary credentials. In short, Kang Sheng did what he did, and once the upper crust of the party in Yan'an had been placated enough and assured she was not as poisonous as they imagined, she moved in with Mao, and he was given a divorce from He Zhang. But Mao had to famously swear that Jiang Qing would never be involved in politics or party affairs, and furthermore would stay out of the public eye. Other than becoming a personal assistant to Mao, Jiang Qing didn't hold any leadership posts. Kang had successfully come to Mao's aid in this personal matter and earned not only lifelong gratitude from the chairman, but from Jiang Qing as well. Even almost to his dying day, it was said that Jiang Qing, who respected nobody, showed Kang Shang the greatest deference, and even at her most powerful during her Gang of Four Days, she always called him Kang Lao, which in the Chinese system of etiquette is about as respectful as you can get. Lao means old or venerable. So by putting that Lao particle after his surname, it was a very respectful way to address someone in the Chinese language, sort of like saying Venerable Kang. Okay, enough said about Jiang Qing. From this point forward, Kang pretty much threw in his lot with Mao. Up till now, he had been part of the Wang Ming Soviet faction that showed great loyalty to the Soviets and treated them as the elder brother in their unholy alliance. So Wang Ming became another leader who felt Kang's knife in his back, as I said, and he gave Mao all the assistance necessary to overthrow Wang Ming and his entire faction. Kang was amply rewarded and was made the chief of the Communist Party's Secret Service in 1938. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At that time, it basically consisted of the two most powerful, most feared, most dreaded organs of security. First was the innocuous-sounding Social Affairs Department, and the other was the Military Intelligence Department. By 1939, Kong is constantly at Mao's side, and surely relished the role as the ultimate insider. The closer you were to Mao Zedong, the more powerful and influential you became. So Kong came to Mao's aid at a vital time, and also sufficiently backstabbed Wang Ming enough to get back in Mao's good graces. As I mentioned, outside of party affairs, Mao and Kang both shared a passion for the classical Chinese arts of calligraphy, poetry, and painting. Mao even used to call Kang his Yizishi, his one-word teacher, who with a single Chinese character could provide the final polishing of Mao's writing. By 1942, Kang had totally turned his back on the Soviets, and his politics were very anti-Soviet from that point forward. And being as close to Mao as he was, it is surely certain that he fanned the flames of Mao's deepening suspicion of his one-time communist big brother to the north. These were the years in 1939, 40, 41, 42, when there was just a reign of quiet terror going on all the time. Everyone was always uneasy about the prospects of being interrogated or having their past or their communist stripes questioned. These were the years where Kang established himself as such a hated figure in the party upper echelons. No one would mess with him because not only was he the secret police chief and a ruthless double-crossing one at that, he was also one of Mao's favorites. So challenging Kang Sheng was never recommended, and everyone kept their distance. But he was a very unloved leader, as I guess all these secret uh, police chiefs are. 1942-1943, the first party cleansing campaign took place. This was the infamous Rectification Campaign, or Zhengfen Yundong. This was the first time the party ever cannibalized itself in a big way. It was a terrible reign of terror, and Mao went after all his enemies or anyone who wasn't supportive of him or his ways of seeing things. This was sort of a precursor of the 1957 anti-rightist campaign, when Mao went after the real and imagined enemies that squeaked by the Rectification Campaign. But all good things come to an end, and they came to an end for Kang Sheng in late 1945, when he was outmaneuvered by his most powerful rivals, and Mao removed him as head of the social affairs and from the military intelligence departments. He might have fallen from power, but his brutal methods and ways definitely survived him. He was still close to Mao, and one of Mao's intimates. But the tide was turning in the civil war against Jiang Kai-shek and the KMT, Mao was getting more and more powerful, and there were many others competing for Mao's attention and favor. By 1947, everyone had to scatter when, in March, the KMT forces took control of Yan'an. Kang, by that time, had been put in charge of Mao's land reform program and had been enthusiastically vicious with any and all manners of landlords and rich peasants. Despite all the outcry at the violent and unnecessarily repressive actions carried out with Kang's orders and leadership, Mao still backed him. Those years from 1946 to 1949 were not good years to be a landlord. Mao next made Kang the party chief of Shandong province. Now, normally anyone would have been overjoyed at holding this provincial Shuji position, but not Kang Sheng. 
all the action was in Beijing, not in the provinces. He was put in charge of his old native province in August of 1949, two months before Mao stood on the podium at Tiananmen and declared the Chinese people had stood up. Well, for the next 20 years, Kang was still an insider, but was far removed from any significant leadership role. Whatever comrades had managed to survive the rectification campaign and all the skullduggery that went on during the Yan'an period went on to build the new China. Kang removed himself from everything and declared himself ill and lived like an invalid in a Qingdao villa where he hung out, lived the life of a traditional Confucian gentleman, and got stoned on opium constantly. He was said to have been a long-time opium smoker and, in fact, was known to Lin Biao and his gang as Old Opium Pipe. It was sort of a well-known secret at the time and totally fit his shady character. He remained uh, almost totally inactive for the next six years, seeing no one and not involving himself in any party work and not making any public appearances. And as if his life wasn't enough of a film noir, he had been having this affair with his wife, uh, Cao Yio's uh, younger sister, Su Mei. This menage a trois, like Kang's opium habit, was another famous well-known secret in the party. Su Mei ended up jumping off a building in May 1950, but survived and Kang had to pull a bunch of levers to do a little work to cover this suicide attempt up. But she ended up later committing suicide in April 1967, when the Cultural Revolution was at a full boil. She OD'd on barbiturates and died alone in her Beijing apartment. Kang Sheng makes somewhat of a comeback in 1955. By this time, he had been sidelined for so long and had played no role whatsoever in building the new nation. Even many of his subordinates have pa had passed him by. He started to do some party work, and he made his return at the 1956 session of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, or CPPCC. The party general office gave him this nice mansion on Small Stone Bridge Lane, just northwest of the Drum Tower in Beijing. He continued to live the life of a scholarly official and continued his great passion for collecting fine Chinese art. He lived in this home until the day he died. It's still there today, and it's called the Bamboo Garden Hotel now. It wasn't much of a comeback uh, for Kang Sheng, because in September 1956, he was demoted and made only an alternate member of the Politburo, and his ranking in the party's pecking order slipped from number 6 to number 22. There was much going on in Kang's life during this period. He backed Mao to the hilt during the Great Leap Forward and was as much of a cheerleader for Mao for this political disaster as he was for Mao's encore to the Great Leap Forward, known as the Cultural Revolution. Kang played a key role in skewering Peng Dehuai after he gan shuhua and wrote his private letter to Mao, expressing his reservation about the excesses of the Great Leap Forward. Kang's unswerving support during the Great Leap Forward, when so many leaders wouldn't display the enthusiasm that Mao hoped for, put him much more in Mao's good graces. In 1963, Kang was up in Moscow with Deng Xiaoping to handle the matter of Sino-Soviet relations. He did his best to combine his Russian expertise with his anti-Russian sentiments and made sure the split between Russia and China was total. Then, in 1965, came his big break. Beijing's popular vice mayor, Wu Han, writes a play called Hai Rui Ba Guan. It's all about this forthright and honest Ming Dynasty official named Hai Rui, 
who was unjustly imprisoned for criticizing the Ming emperor. Sounds innocent enough, right? This spark ignited the Cultural Revolution. Kang and other like-minded troublemakers played with Mao's sensitivities and explained how Hai Rui was actually Peng De Huai and the emperor was Mao, and this whole play was nothing more than a criticism of Mao's policies. Mao saw a conspiracy against him behind every bush, and Kang and other shoe shiners whispered in his ear and told him how right he was. Others at the top layers of power dismissed this notion and defended Wuhan for the attacks against him and his play. November 10, 1965 comes along, and Yao Wenyuan writes this scathing critique of the play and its author in Shanghai's Wenhui Bao, the party newspaper there. By openly attacking Mayor Wu Han, he was doing a classic zhi sang ma huai. This means to point at the mulberry, but to curse the locust tree. It's an old Chinese saying to point at one thing and say how bad it is, but actually attacking something else differently. Wu Han was under attack, but the real target was the entire Beijing leadership. Kang was really in his element here. Yao Wenjian, by the way, went on to hold a 25% stake in the Gang of Four and was one of the most ruthless and violent radicals during the Gang of Four's reign of terror. Mao threw in his lot with the radicals and turned on his comrades who had been with him since the 1920s and 30s. Kang had Mao's backing, and once he had made quick work of party elders like Pan Zhen, Yang Shan Kun, he turned to other targets. June 18, 1966, real violence breaks out at Beijing University, and students turn on teachers and the university administration. Kang worked feverishly behind the scenes, fanning the flames of this radical behavior. And when Mao wrote his first Datsu Bao, or big character poster, and said to bombard the party headquarters, there was no turning back. August 18, 1966, the first of many Red Guard parades took place. This time, Kangsheng was right up there, standing next to Mao, on Tiananmen's viewing podium. As people's lives were ruined or turned upside down, like the Nazis before him, Kang sucked up all kinds of treasures and art from those unfortunate enough to get caught up in the chaos that he sponsored and manipulated. At this time, Kang is still enjoying his opium habits, so you can imagine the constant high he must have been on near the peak of his powers and high on a narcotic drug. He did much of Mao's dirty work, going after enemies and taking charge of witch hunts. At the Ninth Party Congress, he's really at his peak and is made a member of the Standing Committee of the party. He continued to go after any and all real and imagined enemies or anyone who knew about his sleazy past that could possibly embarrass him. But Kangsheng's luck ran out for good in 1970, when, in November, he was diagnosed with cancer of the colon. He lived another five years, but it ravaged him pretty bad. He still remained powerful in the first years of the 70s. By this time, he was known by all as Yin Wang, or the King of Hell. 1972 rolls around, and the worst of the Cultural Revolution is over. Chairman Mao meets with Nixon, and there's a breath of fresh air in the wind after this intense, dark age that fell over China. Mao wasn't in good shape by this time either, and his last few years were very touch-and-go. Kang knew that once Mao left this world to meet Marx, 
his one benefactor disappeared, and it was only a matter of time before he was attacked and his legacy trampled on. So he reached out to the one person he had known longer than all others, good old Jiang Qing. Madame Mao, by this time, was taking full advantage of her prestige as the wife of the chairman, who by this time had turned into sort of a demigod. The more Mao's health declined, the bolder Jiang Qing became, and Kang was there once again, pulling all the strings and manipulating things behind the scenes to build her up and him with her. Then came the 10th Party Congress in August 1973. In addition to membership of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, Kang was also made Vice Chairman of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress. He was also put in charge of the Organization Department as an official position. He's dying at this point, and although still powerful, he was not in any physical condition to do as much damage as he had done in the past when he had great power and influence. The end came for Kang Sheng in 1975. First, Mao openly rebuked Jiang Qing in May of 1975 and seals her fate and foils Kang's plan to use Jiang Qing as an emperor's dowager figure that would ensure his political legacy. And once Mao turned on Jiang Qing, Kang, of course, turned on her too, his final betrayal. December 16, 1975, just after six in the morning, Kang Sheng breathed his last a man who caused countless Chinese to suffer the worst death and pain and circumstances and who aided and abetted Mao Zedong in the worst of his excesses that caused the death and suffering of tens of millions of Chinese. Despite this life of violence and deception, Kang Sheng lived to a relatively ripe old age and died peacefully at his home. He received a state funeral and had his ashes interned at Bapao Shan, which was sort of an Arlington National Cemetery kind of a place, except it wasn't limited to those who served in the military. The whole Politburo attended his funeral, except for Mao, Zhu De, and Zhou Enlai, who were all too frail to attend. Mao died in September 1976, and the Gang of Four were overthrown soon thereafter. Kang Sheng's legacy was given a once-over, and his whole dark past was dredged up and scrutinized. In November 1978, Party Secretary Hu Yaobang, not yet at the peak of his power, attacked Kang Sheng by name in a fiery speech. This led to official investigations that uncovered more than enough dirt to justify removing his ashes from the Bapao Shan Cemetery. And in the summer of 1980, Kang Sheng's art collection was put on display internally, and the extent of his treachery was there for all to see. 12,080 rare books, 1,102 antiques and artifacts. Once it became safe to attack Kang Sheng, everybody piled on. And in 1980, Kang Sheng was posthumously expelled from the Communist Party for having conspired with the Gang of Four in counter-revolutionary activities. I had forgotten amongst all my books on China in my library that I had Dr. Li Zhi Sui's biography of Chairman Mao. He was Mao's personal physician, and although not in any position in the party, he was sort of a fly on the wall to a lot of what happened in and around Zhongnanhai, the compound where most of China's leaders lived back then. I'll close with a quote from his book. I usually tried to avoid Kang Sheng, sensing in him 
some deeper evil that I could never fully explain. He had the look of deceit about him. Even his photographs, I think, convey an air of evil. I associated him with the dark side of the party, with all the dirty work that had to be done, delving into people's pasts, finding new enemies, suggesting new targets for attack. I did not want to be part of that, nor would Mao have wanted me to be. So that's all I have for you today on Kang Shang. Quite a ghoul he was. Thanks for listening, if you've made it this far, that is. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again wishing everyone a pleasant farewell from Claremont, California, 91711, home of the world-renowned China Project at the Center for Process Studies at the Claremont School of Theology. I hope we'll see you again next time for another scintillating edition of the China History Podcast.